0: Chapter Eighteen of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Sage. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter Eighteen. Just over the border. A hail and farewell. By the evening of the sixteenth the subtle hand of Hurstwood had made itself apparent. He had given the word among his friends, and they were many and influential, that here was something which they ought to attend. And as a consequence, the sale of tickets by Mr. Kinsel, acting for the lodge, had been large. Small, four-line notes had appeared in all the daily newspapers. These he had arranged for by the aid of one of his newspaper friends on the Times, Mr. Harry McGarren the managing editor. "'Say, Harry,' Hurstwood said to him one evening, as the latter stood at the bar drinking before wending his belated way homeward. "'You can help the boys out, I guess.' "'What is it?' said Mr. McGarron, pleased to be consulted by the opulent manager. "'Ah, the Custer-Large is getting up a little entertainment for their own good, and they'd like a little newspaper notice, you know what I mean, a squib or two saying that it's going to take place.' Certainly, said McGarron. I can fix that for you, George. At the same time, Hurstwood kept himself wholly in the background. The members of Custer Lodge could scarcely understand why their little affair was taking off so well. Mr. Harry Kinsel was looked upon as quite a star for this sort of work. By the time the 16th had arrived, Hurstwood's friends had rallied like Romans to a senator's call. A well-dressed, good-natured, flatteringly inclined audience was assured from the moment he thought of assisting Carrie. That little student had mastered her part to her own satisfaction, much as she trembled for her fate when she should once face the gathered throng behind the glare of the footlights. She tried to console herself with the thought that a score of other persons, men and women, were equally tremulous concerning the outcome of their efforts, but she could not dissociate the general danger from her own individual liability. She feared that she would forget her lines, that she might be unable to master the feeling which she now felt concerning her own movements in the play. At times, she wished that she had never gone into the affair. At others, she trembled lest she should be paralyzed with fear and stand white and gasping, not knowing what to say and spoiling the entire performance. In the matter of the company, Mr. Bamberger had disappeared. That hopeless example had fallen under the lance of the director's criticism. Mrs. Morgan was still present, but envious and determined, if for nothing more than spite, to do as well as carry at least. A loafing professional had been called in to assume the role of Ray, and while he was a poor stick of his kind, he was not troubled by any of those qualms which attack the spirit of those who have never faced an audience. He swashed about, cautioned though he was to maintain silence concerning his past theatrical relationships, in such a self-confident manner that he was like to convince everyone of his identity by mere matter of circumstantial evidence. It's so easy, He said to Mrs. Morgan, in the usual affected stage voice, "'An audience would be the last thing to trouble me. "'It's the spirit of the part, you know, that is difficult.' Carrie disliked his appearance, "'but she was too much the actress "'not to swallow his qualities with complacence, "'seeing that she must suffer his fictitious love for the evening. "'At six she was ready to go. "'Theatrical paraphernalia had been provided over and above her care.' She had practiced her make-up in the morning, had rehearsed and arranged her material for the evening by one o'clock, and had gone home to have a final look at her part, waiting for the evening to come. On this occasion, the lodge sent a carriage. Druitt rode with her as far as the door, and then went about the neighboring stores, looking for some good cigars. The little actress marched nervously into her dressing-room and began that painfully anticipated matter of make-up which was to transform her, a simple maiden, to Laura, the belle of society. The flare of the gas jets, the open trunks suggestive of travel and display, the scattered contents of the make-up box, rouge, pearl powder, whiting, burnt cork, India ink, pencils for the eyelids, wigs, scissors, looking-glasses, drapery, in short, all the nameless paraphernalia of disguise have a remarkable atmosphere of their own. Since her arrival in the city, many things had influenced her, but always in a far removed manner. This new atmosphere was more friendly. It was wholly unlike the great brilliant mansions which waved her coldly away, permitting her only awe and distant wonder. This took her by the hand kindly as one who says, My dear, come in. It opened for her as if for its own. She had wondered at the greatness of the names upon the billboards, the marvel of the long notices in the paper, the beauty of the dresses upon the stage, the atmosphere of carriages, flowers, refinement. Here was no illusion. Here was an open door to see all of that. She had come upon it as one who stumbles upon a secret passage, and behold, she was in the chamber of diamonds and delight. As she dressed with a flutter in her little stage room, hearing the voices outside, seeing Mr. Kinsel hurrying here and there, noting Mrs. Morgan and Mrs. Hoagland at their nervous work of preparation. Seeing all the twenty members of the cast moving about and worrying over what the result would be, she could not help thinking what a delight this would be if it would endure. How perfect a state if she could only do well now, and then, sometime, get a place as a real actress." the thought had taken a mighty hold upon her. It hummed in her ears as the melody of an old song. Outside, in the little lobby, another scene was being enacted. Without the interest of Hurstwood, the little hall would probably have been comfortably filled, for the members of the lodge were moderately interested in its welfare. Hurstwood's word, however, had gone the rounds. It was to be a full-dress affair. The four boxes had been taken, Dr. Norman McNeil Hale and his wife were to occupy one. This was quite a card. C.R. Walker, dry-goods merchant and possessor of at least $200,000, had taken another. A well-known coal merchant had been induced to take the third, and Hurstwood and his friends had the fourth. Among the latter was Druitt. The people who were now pouring here were not celebrities nor even local notabilities in a general sense. They were the lights of a certain circle, the circle of small fortunes and secret order distinctions. These gentlemen-elks knew the standing of one another. They had regard for the ability which could amass a small fortune, own a nice home, keep a barouche or carriage, perhaps wear fine clothes, and maintain a good mercantile position. Naturally, Hurstwood, who was a little above the order of mind which accepted this standard as perfect, who had shrewdness and much assumption of dignity, who held an imposing and authoritative position and commanded friendship by intuitive tact in handling people, was quite a figure. He was more generally known than most others in the same circle, and was looked upon as someone whose reserve covered a mine of influence and a solid financial prosperity. Tonight, he was in his element. He came with several friends, directly from rectors in a carriage. In the lobby, he met Druitt, who was just returning from a trip for more cigars. All five now joined in an animated conversation concerning the company present, and the general drift of Lodge affairs. "'Who's here?' said Hurstwood, passing into the theatre proper, where the lights were turned up, and a company of gentlemen were laughing and talking in the open space back of the seats. "'Why, how do you do, Mr. Hurstwood?' came from the first individual recognized. "'Glad to see you,' said the latter, grasping his hand lightly. "'Looks like quite an affair, doesn't it?' "'Yes, indeed,' said the manager.' "'Custer seems to have the backing of its members,' observed the friend. "'So it should have,' said the knowing manager. "'I'm glad to see it.' "'Well, George,' said another rotund citizen, whose avoir du poids made necessary an almost alarming display of starched shirt-bosom. "'How goes it with you?' "'Excellent,' said the manager. "'What brings you over here? You're not a member of Custer?' "'Good nature,' returned the manager. "'Like to see the boys, you know.' wife here ah uh, she couldn't come to-night uh, she's not well oh sorry to hear that nothing serious i hope no just feeling a little ill i remember mrs hurstwood when she was travelling once with you over at st joe and here the newcomer launched off in a trivial recollection which was terminated by the arrival of more friends why george how are you said another genial West Side politician and lodge member. My, but I'm glad to see you again. How are things, anyhow? Very well. I see you got the nomination for alderman. Yes, we whipped them out over there without much trouble. What do you suppose Hennessy will do now? Ah, oh, he'll go back to his brick business. He has a brickyard, you know. I didn't know that, said the manager. Felt pretty sore, I suppose, over his defeat. Perhaps," said the other, winking shrewdly. Some of the more favored of his friends, whom he had invited, began to roll up in carriages now. They came shuffling in with great show of finery and much evident feeling of content and importance. "'Here we are,' said Hurstwood, turning to one from a group with whom he was talking. "'That's right,' returned the newcomer, a gentleman of about forty-five. "'And say,' he whispered jovially pulling hurstwood over by the shoulder so that he might whisper in his ears if this isn't a good show i'll punch your head you ought to pay for seeing your old friends bother the show to another who inquired is it really something good the manager replied i don't know i don't suppose so then lifting his hand graciously for the lodge lots of boys out eh yes look up shanahan he was just asking for you a moment ago It was thus that the little theater resounded to a babble of successful voices, the creak of fine clothes, the commonplace of good nature, and all largely because of this man's bidding. Look at him any time within the half hour before the curtain was up. He was a member of an eminent group, a rounded company of five or more whose stout figures, large white bosoms, and shining pins bespoke the character of their success, the gentlemen who brought their wives called him out to shake hands. Seats clicked, ushers bowed, while he looked blandly on. He was evidently a light among them, reflecting in his personality the ambitions of those who greeted him. He was acknowledged, fawned upon, in a way, lionized. Through it all, one could see the standing of the man. It was a greatness, in a way, small as it was. End of chapter 18 Recording by Bob Sage.